Well, God bless you guys. Thank you, ladies. Thank you, uh, Jay and Stephen, for serving the church by taking up the offering together. That's that's. I just love watching parents and children, fathers and sons, do things in the church. We're teaching the next generation, raising them up. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Are there any children that need to be dismissed at this time? If they are, um, they can go out. And this is a good time for me to bring to your attention that uh, we have two dates in September that we still need someone to volunteer to help with the children during this time, September 4th and September 25th, I think. So if you can ser- step up and serve in that role during this sermon time to watch the children and teach them and guide them, that would be a very big help, uh, not only to uh, the children, but to the church as a whole. This is the next generation coming up, isn't it? Amen. God bless you guys. Um, well, turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, as we continue in this wonderful chapter, in this wonderful gospel, uh, Jesus is now continuing to teach us as he's teaching his 12. If you remember all of chapter 18, if you think of this as one teaching session between Jesus and his 12, it's, it's, it's a, it's a teaching moment. It's a sermon, if you will. Some scholars call it a sermon, but it's directed to his 12. And especially when we get down to verse 21 here in a couple of weeks, it's going to be more directed to Peter. So, remind, I mean, the remainder of Matthew 18 from verses 10 and following is the teaching of the greatness of the little ones. If you remember, he's con- Jesus is continuing this theme here of who is the greatest in the kingdom. And he's, he's, he's taught us up to this point. It's the little ones, the little ones and this idea of the greatness of the little ones will continue from verses 10 to the end of the chapter, verse 35, and we'll focus on three parables. There's three parables from this point forward, and some may say, now, Pastor, there's only two parables. Well, I'm going to propose today that there's three parables here, and so for the next three weeks, we'll be looking at three parables, okay? Uh, he, He continues this teaching moment, to these 12 of his apostles by focusing on the love of God for the little ones, love of God for the lost and the unforgiven. He's going to tease this moment with the illustration of the child that is standing in the midst of them that we saw in verse 2. This Imagine the child is still standing here as Jesus is teaching. That's the picture, okay? So even the passage dealing in chapter 18, with the restoration of an offensive brother in the church, has the spirit of the other parables of the chapter. The love of the wayward one, the love of the little one. Even when restoring a sinful brother or sister, there is the intent of coming after the lost, coming after the vulnerable. And lastly, at the end of the chapter, as Jesus closes the chapter with Peter, the The forgiveness of one another, even the unforgivable brother or sister that you still must forgive, is the kingdom of heaven. That's the theme here. So his illustration with the child continues here in verses 10 through 14. But when we look here at verses 10 through 14 today, I want you to notice the repeated use of the phrase little ones. If you're taking any notes in your Bible, verses 10 through 15, Jesus is continuing the idea of the little ones that he spoke about in verses 1 through 6. So if you're able to stand, let's stand and read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, okay? See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does not, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Well, that's a deep, deep story, isn't it? Let's take a look at this today. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for your word. And I do praise you for the depth of your son's teaching and even in these simple illustrations, these parables. So God, I pray this morning that you would open our hearts to hear the truth that you have for us to hear. To cause us to get a mental picture, an image of the kingdom of heaven in the way that you desire for us to see. And it begins with your compassion for us as the lost and wayward ones that you come after one, one soul in favor of 99. Lord, that is, that is a deep and an overwhelming image of truth. And so God, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning to receive the truth here of your word, to cause us to see your compassion and your love and your, your fervency for us, that you do not wish for us to be deceived and go astray. Love us, Father, this morning. Speak to our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I, I love what Matthew does in this chapter with the idea of the least or the little ones. The idea that the least will be first and the first will be last. This is an idea that will carry through all the way through chapter 19. Actually, 19, verse 30, Jesus speaks about the least will be first and the first will be last. But that idea begins back here in chapter 18. I mean, if we remind, if we remember the teaching of the narrow way, if you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus talks about the narrow way to the kingdom. And then, then what Jesus teaches here in verse, in chapter 18 to his disciples is actually the same concept of the narrow way in the kingdom of heaven. It's the same idea, the same theme that's carrying over from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven. I mean, by example here, Jesus now speaks, I'm, again, I'm, I'm proposing through three parables. There's three parables here at the end of chapter 18. And all of these parables always point to what does the kingdom of heaven look like? What is the gospel? What is the kingdom of heaven? We see here in verses 10 through 14, a parable of the lost sheep. And I think next week we're going to look at verses 15 through 20. The, I'm going to say that's a parable of the sinful brother. It's, and we're, we're going to unpack that next week, but I want to give you a little bit of a heads up. I'm not going to approach next week's text as a legal or step-by-step church governance. It's a parable. We'll just look at it from that perspective. So little little heads up next week. And then lastly, at the end of the chapter, the parable of the unforgiving servant. All of these point to what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is Jesus teaching here as he's looking at the little ones. You know, God the Father sends his son to come after the lost, particularly the little ones. Because again, this is a common theme here in Jesus's teaching. Remember that this parable of the lost sheep here in verses 10 through 14 is spoken in the context of the little child still standing amongst the 12 disciples in Jesus and probably some other people around in the periphery here. And Jesus is illustrating who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, go back to chapter 18, verse 1. Always, when you're looking at chapter 18, look at chapter 1, I mean, verse 1, and actually verse 4. Verse 1 initiated this whole teaching. The, the disciples were asking, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That idea is still here in verses 10 through 14. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? According to the shepherd, the good shepherd that Jay actually read in Luke chapter 10, the model shepherd, the good shepherd, he goes after the greatest of his kingdom, the ones who are wayward and lost. Hmm. Ponder that for a minute. Because here in verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How many of us have ever had to go after a wayward child who runs away? When they're toddlers, you can't hold on to them. <laughs> but that's what happens. Look here in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that the heaven, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
And as I read that, some of you said, now, wait a minute. That was verses, or you skipped verse 11. Well, we're going to get that here in a minute. Some of your Bibles may have a verse 11. Some of your Bibles may not have a verse 11. If you're not paying attention, look at that. Verse 10. Jesus instructs us, I think here, in three ways to deny ourselves. That's what he's done up until this point. He's he shown us how to deny ourselves. And now he's shifting his focus in his lesson to how to seek out others. After you deny yourself, now where do you turn your focus? Outside of yourself, onto others. That's what he's beginning to do here. The others are valuable to our Lord so much so that he will spare no expense in searching for one. Isn't that amazing? Our Father in heaven will spend no expense in searching for one who has strayed from the flock. I mean, one could glean from this parable that the disciples would have to chase after wayward sheep someday. Remember, Jesus is preparing his 12 for the day that Jesus is no longer with them, the day that he has ascended into heaven. But let's remember here that this illustration of the lost sheep, it actually echoes a greater gospel truth. If God the Father sends his son after wayward sinners, all of humanity really, then he also, as well, will be going after the faithful of the flock. Those in the church, we too must, as the faithful, chase after those in our midst who stray. I think that's part of the lesson here. Jesus is showing by example, I, the Son of God, am sent by the Father of heaven to chase after one. You too, as the church, you disciples, as you take over after my departure, you too must do the same. You must chase after one in favor over the 99. Sometimes that's hard for us to think here. But Jesus speaks of little ones in verses 10 and 11 as the ones that even angels seek to protect. The warning here in verse 10 is directed to his disciples and his apostles not to allow their pride to mislead the little ones. He's warning them here in verse 10, don't let the little ones be deceived by your pride and your arrogance of seeking after the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. How can we despise little ones? How can we overlook little ones? It's by looking so much on ourselves and wanting to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's what the disciples were doing, and Jesus is now correcting them. He says in this, in this parable of the lost sheep, do not allow your pride to mislead the little ones or to despise one of my little ones. How many of us have been guilty of that? I mean, the idea of despising here in verse 10, I think is in the same context of verse 7 when Jesus was warning about temptation. To tempt is also to place a stumbling block in front of one's path. Particularly here, stumbling block, temptations will distract someone from their salvation. And he's warning his disciples here not to be the one who despises one that the Holy Spirit is drawing, that the Father in heaven is pursuing. To despise is to, what does this mean? To despise is to look down upon, particularly the little ones, insignificant ones, those who are not the greatest, quote unquote. Despising them, insulting them, having scorn towards someone like that. I mean, Jesus speaks of protection again for his little ones here. He's speaking here of warning. I will protect my little ones, those who believe in me. Remember verse 6? Here's what Jesus said in verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. That's who he's talking about here, I think, in verses 10 through 14 as well. Jesus is protecting them. But think about this, to despise also might imply take for granted. Might also mean take for granted, because notice how Jesus follows up with the reference to the angels in heaven who watch over these little ones. Let's continue here in verse 10. See that no, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. 
For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. They're angels. I mean, the traditional medieval view of the church as they interpreted this passage is that all children have their own assigned angel to watch over them. Some of you in this room may have even taught children that. You have an angel, you have a guardian angel. In Jewish angelology, if you want to use that word, the, the, the theology of angels in the Judaic, in the Jude, Jewish tradition, it was highly developed by this point. But in Jewish idea of angelology, no angels were put at the service of the weak or the despised or the little. Instead, angels were reserved and dispatched to defend the mighty. See what Jesus is doing here in verse 10? He's showing something much different, a greater truth. Angels are not reserved for the mighty men of God. Angels are watching over the little ones. I mean, but here Jesus teaches that the angels are actually in an earnest mission, a quest, if you will, for the unfaithful and instead, rather than being in a war against them. See, Jewish idea of angels would be, that they're at war against the unrighteous. But here Jesus is saying, no, these, these, my angels are in an earnest mission for the unfaithful. The angels are not at war with the unfaithful or the lost. The angels are actually on a mission to get them, protect them, because I, the Son of God, cherish them so much. You can also, you can argue that the, that, those who struggle to commit to Christ in faith are the little ones talked about here in a way. And these ministering angels will fight for them with the greatest fervency and strength. That's what we see here in verse 10. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, now the Bible will often speak of angels as ministering spirits, ministering evangelists. Their battle is to preach or to minister or to deliver the good news of salvation. That's their mission. They are to preach the gospel wherever they're, wherever they're dispatched to, all pointing to the saving grace made available in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the writer of Hebrews says that the purpose of angels are as ministering spirits ministering spirits. But when you look at uh, Hebrews 1.14, they are ministering to those who benefit from salvation. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's their role. That's their mission to minister to by preaching the gospel, by being God's emissaries for those who hear the gospel. I mean, so the words of Jesus here in Matthew 18.10 confirm that angels actually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Why is that important? Because the takeaway here is that the angels who seek to minister to the little ones are emissaries of the royal heavenly court. Their face is always turned to my Father in heaven. They are representatives. They are emissaries. They are sent by the Father. Those in their care are then especially valued. I think that's the point here, verse 10. The Father in heaven values the little ones so much that he sends his angels, those angels whose face is turned to the Father waiting for his instruction, waiting for his sending, his mission. And so the angels, these ministering spirits, you could also argue that they are the evangelists who have taken their eyes, who have, I mean, their eyes are turned to the face of God. They are close to the king. So despising the valued ones of the king of the royal court, if you despise them, You've made yourself an enemy of the king. You see the warning here in verse 10? 
despising the favored little ones that the royal court of heaven sees as important will result in being the enemy of God himself. See that in verse 10? See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. That's the point. The Father in heaven sees these as favored and special, and their angels see the face of God and see what he sees about them. But when Jesus says that the angels of the little ones have unrestricted access to the Father in heaven, we actually see the kind of Father that Jesus knew. The Father in heaven is accessible. He's open to comfort the little ones. But before we go on to the parable of the lost sheep here, before we move on to verses 11 and 12, I want to address whether children have their own special angel watching over them. This is an important theological and doctrinal point. Verse 10 implies their angels. And this has traditionally been interpreted to say that children have a guardian angel watching over them at all times. Again, the Jewish angelology actually kind of taught this. This was one of the ideas here that all of God's people had a special angel protecting them. We see it throughout Scripture. Acts chapter 12, verse 15, when Peter is miraculously rescued from prison, where does he go? He goes to find the brethren who are waiting for him and praying for him, and he goes and knocks on the door. Do you all remember that story? He goes and knocks on the door in the middle of the night, and it's Rhoda who goes and hears his voice and sees him, and what does she do? She slams the door and runs into the house and go tell everybody, Peter's here. She forgets to let him in. (laughs) But what happens? The brethren who are gathered in the house don't believe Rhoda. Why? Because in Acts chapter 12, verse 15, they do not believe Rhoda when Peter comes to the house because they say, no, you're mistaken, it is his angel. Now, some may interpret that as, well, that's his ghost, but that's not the point. The point here in the Jewish understanding of angels is, that's not Peter, he's in prison, that's his angel who watches over him outside. But, here's the problem. When you look at Scripture as a whole, the idea that children have their own guardian angel is not supported. Just saying. John Calvin argues that Scripture does not support this idea of an individually assigned guardian angel. Instead, when we look at Psalm 34, verse 7, this is just one passage, we get the idea of the angel of the Lord watching out over all of God's people. The angel, here's what Psalm 34, 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescue him. It is as if the angel of the Lord is committed to guard every child of God, not simply one particularly assigned charge. That's really what we see in Scripture. When we see in uh, Daniel chapter 3, an angel protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You all remember that story. In verse 25 of Daniel 3, we read, and they are, this is after they are sent into the fiery furnace. And they are not hurt, and the, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods, is how that's described. And then in verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. God has sent his angel, the angel of the Lord, and delivered his servants. So what we see in Scripture again in Daniel chapter 6 Verse 22, the prophet Daniel actually acknowledges that God sent his angel, God's angel, to protect Daniel while he was in the lion's den. When we see in verse 22 of Daniel 6, my God has sent his angel, not my angel. God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. So before... I hurt the feelings of many grandparents and mothers and parents and who love their children and, and teach them that they have a guardian angel. Biblically, that's not necessarily true. Yet, the idea that God's angel 
watches out over all that he sees as special and precious and favored. That's very biblical. And we can teach that, can't we? Have I hurt anybody's feelings in here by telling you that the Scripture does not support guardian angels? Okay, if I've hurt your feelings, talk to me later. Okay. So we see evidence even in the Jewish traditions of the Old Testament that angels are not necessarily assigned to particular individuals. They have a broader mission. Instead, God's angel, the angel of the Lord, actually leads all angels to encamp around God's people, particularly the blameless, the little ones who are still learning and growing, perhaps wayward from time to time. Now, let's let's talk about verse 11 here. How many people have verse 11 in their Bibles? How many people do not have a verse 11 in your Bibles? Okay, let me explain what's happening here in verse 11, okay? Many later manuscripts of Matthew inserted a verse 11, the earliest manuscripts that scholars can find, the earliest, which means the first, do not have a verse 11. Somewhere along the history of transcribing texts, Someone must have put in verse 11. Doesn't mean that it's in error. It just is not in the original earliest manuscripts that scholars have. That's why many of the current trans English translations of scripture do not have a verse 11, but older translations, the King James, uh, New American Standard, they even have a verse 11. Where did this come from? It actually comes from Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Again, doesn't take away from the text of Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. But just understand, historically, through scholarship, the original manuscripts of Matthew 18 do not have that verse. It must have been added later when scribes were copying it. Okay? Now, let's drop down to verse 12. Now Jesus illustrates further the value that the Father in heaven places upon these little ones. Let's read verses 12, verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Very simple, very direct, but this is a parable, isn't it? This parable is a teaching moment and it will take the responsibility, take the responsibility to care for Christ's sheep. Jesus is teaching his 12. He's actually teaching us as his disciples too, that we are, we have a responsibility to care for the sheep, to care for the sheep that belong to the Father. Look at this. It is helpful to compare, I think, let's think about this. It's helpful to compare the context here of this parable in Matthew 18 with Luke's account of Luke 15. If you're taking notes, Luke chapter 15 is the other place in Scripture where we find this parable. But there's two different contexts that we'll look at here after a while. Here in Matthew's Gospel, the context of the lost sheep is within this childish question in verse 1 of who is the greatest. Luke's account in Luke 15 is within the context of grumbling Pharisees who are complaining that Jesus eats with sinners. So we have two different contexts, but the same parable. And I think that's important. Luke's gospel includes the parable of the lost sheep, along with two other parables of the lost coin and the prodigal son. So Luke records three different parables of losing something as an illustration of Jesus' teachings. Yet the point of all of these parables is the value and the great sacrifice that Jesus places upon the lost, upon the little ones. Remember, for the Son of Man has come to save who? The lost. Now in verse 12, Jesus speaks of himself as the example that he will teach his apostles to honor and to seek after the little ones, those who are weak, those who are despised. I mean, Jesus the Son comes from heaven to save not just these faithful twelve, but also, and more importantly, He came to save the dead who are lost. That's the point. 
I mean, Jesus, who is the Son of God, he highly esteems who? The lost and the forgotten. And so too, all of his disciples and we the church are to highly esteem the lost and the forgotten. I mean, we're to value those who Jesus values. We're to value those who the Father in heaven values. Look here in verse 12. Jesus introduces his parable with the context of a wandering sheep lost from the flock. The idea here is to go astray. Now, I looked at several translations, and that's a common translation, to go astray. Think about this. Sheep often wander, right? All livestock tend to wander. We got some farmers in here. You raise cattle. Do, do cattle wander? They do from time to time. That's why you got to keep them fenced in. I mean, this is why it's a full-time job to run a farm or run a ranch. You may get a phone call from your neighbor down the road. Hey, come get your cow. <laughs> it happens. I mean, the idea here in verse 12 and 13 is that our Lord's sheep will go astray. Now, what is, I want us to understand what this means, go astray. It's the idea of being deceived by a greener pasture. The idea, the Greek word here, planeo, is actually translated two different ways in John chapter 7 and Matthew 22. In John chapter 7, verse 47, this idea of going astray is in the context of Pharisees answering Jesus, talking about, have you also been deceived? Have you also been deceived? Jesus is using this idea of going astray as deception. It's also the idea in Matthew 22 of you are wrong, talking about Jesus is talking about the resurrection and the Sadducees are are condemning Jesus. You are wrong here. So the idea of going astray, that Greek word there implies being deceived. It implies being wrong. It's not just a oops I left the gate open. There seems to be an intentional straying here of the sheep. They are being deceived. They are wrong in their conclusion. They are being led somewhere outside of the protection of the shepherd. I mean, the illustration here is of Jesus as the model shepherd, the kind shepherd who knows his flock so well that when even one out of a hundred disappears, he pays attention. Can you imagine having a hundred sheep and one of them wander off and how would you even know one out of a hundred? They all look the same to me. Y'all ever been around sheep? They sound like babies crying. Y'all know that? And they act like it too. I mean, Jesus, he, he, not only does he, he notices that one disappears and he goes after it. But when he finds the sheep, he pours oil on its wounds and he binds the broken leg and he places this lamb on his shoulders and he brings it back home. Isn't that amazing? That's the idea here of our Lord. Let's look here at verse 13. So now verse 12, Jesus talks about, sets the scene here, that he goes in search of the one that is deceived, that is wrong. Verse 13, the point of all of chapter 18, I think, is right here in verse 13. What does he do? He re- When he finds the sheep, what does he do? He rejoices over it. He rejoices over the lost sheep more so than over the 99 that never went astray. He rejoices over the one sheep that was deceived more so than the 99 who stayed put. He rejoices more over the one who was wrong And he was over the 99 who were right. Hmm. I mean, Jesus rejoices over one wayward, deceived, lost, errant lamb that he recovers more than over 99 obedient sheep. That's the point. I think you can underline verse 13 here as the point of all of chapter 18. The little ones... That, is, that are wandering due to deception are more valued to Jesus and he'll go after them and he will rejoice and he will celebrate when this broken and lost soul is recovered. That's the point. Rejoice 
Brothers and sisters, over one deceived soul that comes home because Jesus the shepherd never gives up searching and even sacrifices himself for the one that went astray. The one. I mean, God's seeking care. I mean, it's portrayed by Jesus the son here as he seeks out the least in the body, the least of the culture, the ones who were insignificant, and he goes after them to care for them. God's seeking care is portrayed here by Jesus as he sacrifices all he is, all that he has for this one. Jesus would have gone to the cross for one. Jesus would have gone to the cross for one. That's the point. The one. The one that he chose, the one that he desired, the one that he sees needs him the most. The Savior is infinitely more anxious and more determined to restore the wayward soul than he is of the most obedient believer. That's the point. The idea of lost here implies that this wayward sheep, this sheep that's been deceived, belonged to the flock before it was deceived. I want you to understand this. I think what Jesus is talking about in this parable, he's talking about a sheep that was part of the flock before it was deceived, before it was wrong, before it went astray. I mean, so we have to ask whether Jesus speaks here of backsliding Christians or is he speaking of sinners that are in need of salvation to enter the kingdom? Who's he talking about here? I mean, the context implies ones who belong and then leave, even if misguided or temporarily wandering. doesn't mean that someone has lost their salvation. It means that within the body of Christ, there are moments of our lives, even though we belong to Christ, we are redeemed and saved in the blood of Christ, we will have moments in our journey with our Lord where we will be deceived and we will wander. doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. It means that we struggle means that we depend on our Savior. And from time to time, we will be deceived and we will wander and we will go astray. But when we do, remember that word of go astray also can be translated wrong. Deception, wrong thinking, wrong believing, going astray. That's the idea here. The context implies here that we who belong to our Lord will wander from time to time. Even if misguided or temporarily wandering, this sheep here belongs to the shepherd. Not someone he's just randomly saving. It's someone who belonged to the flock of a hundred and went away. If Jesus is the shepherd, these sheep are all redeemed souls living in his protection. And I think this parable of the lost sheep is one lesson about rejoicing over the value of one soul. One that belongs to Christ, but then is deceived. I mean, Jesus Christ here, he rejoices and he highly values one soul. But this parable is found in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. So I want to close here by just comparing the two contexts. We mentioned it before, but I really want to break it down a little bit. So if you've got your finger, you can hold one finger at Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14, but also John chapter 15, okay? This is why I see that the lesson of rejoicing over one who has gone astray, I think, actually means two equal values in the eyes of God. Look here at Matthew's account. Matthew's account speaks of the one who went astray, who is the little one, and is in the context here of the apostles uh, who will become shepherds of Jesus' church. The sheep that goes astray here in Matthew 18, verses 12 through 14, I think, is the wayward Christian of the flock that requires encouragement from the church. Not only will Jesus go after them, We as the church are called by Christ to do the same. Someone in the church body needs the rest of the church to love them so much, to love them the way God loves them, and to go out and return them home. This is important. Think about anyone in this church body that you've not seen in a while. Have you bothered calling them? Have you bothered to say, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I buy you lunch? Let's go. How are things going? 
It's important that when we miss someone else in the body, we care for them. I can only do so much, folks. There's about a hundred or more of you in this church body. Do you realize that? When you count the children and the adults, we've got close to a hundred folks in this congregation. How many people are in here this morning? Now, I get it. Work happens. Illness happens. Seems like illness happens a lot, folks. Maybe we need to have a, a, a prayer time about illness all the time. And as the shepherd, you got to go take care of the sick people. But think, think about this. I mean, this is, I think Jesus is using this parable here with his 12. Go after the one that is missing. And love them so much. Love them the way I love them. Remember in verses 10, in verse 10, angels minister to those whom the Father in heaven favors. These are the ones that the angels go to protect. And in verse 6, the context is those who believe in Christ. So that's why I think one understanding of this parable in Matthew's account, Matthew's sharing of this parable talks about those who belong to Christ. But now Luke's account is different. Same parable, but Luke shares this parable in a different context. Luke's account speaks of sinners. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, near to hear him. Verse 2. And the Pharisees said, and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 3. So he told them this parable, and he talks about the lost sheep. Notice the context is a bit different. The Pharisees are grumbling about sinners, and Jesus is talking about the lost sheep as sinners. Matthew's account is talking about lost sheep as those who belong to the flock. Luke's account talks about lost sinners. I mean, the Pharisees moan here about sinners eating with Jesus, so Jesus tells this parable of the lost sheep in the context of sinners being very valuable to God. So I think the parable of the lost sheep has two meanings, two contexts, but one two contexts, but one overarching theme. In Matthew's account, Jesus is talking about the wayward Christian who belongs to the flock. In Luke's account, we're talking about sinners. Didn't Jesus come to save sinners? I mean, Jesus tells this parable of the lost sheep in Luke's account that sinners are very valuable to God. Here's what he says in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So here's an example, I think, of Jesus' parables were often taught in different contexts, but still the same lesson. I think in Matthew's account, he's talking to his 12 disciples around a child, talking about who is the greatest. The little ones. In Luke's account, he's talking to the Pharisees who are complaining about sinners. These sinners belong to me. And I think it's more important that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Isn't that amazing? I mean, so the meaning of Jesus' parable of the lost sheep is, I think, both heavenly rejoicing over repentant sinners that the shepherd seeks out, as well, I think, as the wayward and deceived citizen of the kingdom who will wander from time to time. I think it's both. Now we look here in Matthew 10, verse 14, and close this out. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We've got to look at the idea of perish here, and we're going to close it. The will of God the Father, as I think is made clear here, He does not will that any of His little ones should perish. What is, what is the idea of perish here? If you are a deceived, wayward, gone astray sheep, the outcome can easily be that you are destroyed or ruined. But notice how the sheep gets in this context. How can this, I mean, the sheep who is lost is one who is deceived, who is looking at greener pastures, who is wrong in their leaving the flock. And the result here in verse 14, it could be that this little one should perish. The little one could be destroyed. 
the little one could be ruined. The idea is that Jesus is here saying, I don't want you to destroy yourself. I don't want you to ruin your eternity here. The, the, the cause of the waywardness here is deception from Satan, but it's also this sheep willingly departs from the fold to their own ruin, their own destruction, if not rescued and protected. You see the idea? I think that Jesus' point here is that the sheep or the lamb that goes astray is the loved one, this created soul, this loved soul that strays from the Father. And if the Father doesn't send the shepherd, if the Son of God doesn't go after this wayward soul, then this wayward soul will destroy itself. Can Jesus imply two things here? I think, perhaps. I mean, all created human beings have gone astray. Would you agree? Since the fall of Eden, all human beings have willingly gone astray. Correct? The gospel is that God has come after his beloved creation who have willingly wandered and gone astray. That's one idea here. But I think the sheep here are Christ's redeemed, his church, his disciples, the believers of the church. One lamb wanders and Christ desires his or her safety and restoration. I think both ideas are here. I mean, these apostles will have responsibility for these sheep of, and they are to go after the wandering soul. But they're also to go after the sinner and bring them into the fold as well. I think both are implied here. I mean, I think there are, I think there are two lessons here that point to the importance of evangelism and visitation. Can we say visitation? Visiting those that we know and love them and say, where have you been? Calling them up. Pester them. As a good brother or sister should. Amen? I mean, we've had many in the church who have gone astray and even though the apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us, but they were not of us, but they were, they, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. That's a passage that many will use. And I agree with this, that if someone walks away from the faith, were they ever part of the faith to begin with? I agree with that interpretation. That doesn't mean that we just ignore them. If they were part of the body, we go after them. And if they continue to reject that salvation, if they continue to reject that love and that compassion, they will eventually destroy themselves. But that's not what we desire. Amen? I mean, Jesus teaches that any who are of the flock, and the key here is truly of the flock, we go after them. Jesus knows his flock well because he's the great shepherd. So here's the question as we close. Who are you? Are you one of these sheep who has gone astray? Are you one of the sheep who has been deceived? Are you one of the sheep who is in the wrong? Then know that the words of our Lord here and your Lord, that God has not forgotten you. He's not. I mean, you're, you're not abandoned in the wilderness, although you took yourself to the wilderness. If you're one of these sheep who went astray, you took yourself there. You were deceived into wandering away from the safety of the Father. Away from the safety of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And when you're found, there will be great rejoicing in heaven. Just like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, you'll be led back home. Most likely through the circumstances of your wayward and deceptive choices, you will still be led back home. But, but when the great shepherd finds you and brings you home, oh, there's going to be great rejoicing. Amen? When we bring home the wayward soul, there is great rejoicing. Because remember the words of our Savior, Matthew 18, verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And it is because of the sinners that the Savior comes and goes after them. So who are you? Are you being called by this parable to be the one to seek out after lost souls and sinners or even wayward little ones? Or maybe you're one of the wayward little ones. I don't know. Who are you?
Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. Dear God, we do ask for Your wisdom and Your mercy. Lord, as, as we read these words, if your son, the lost sheep, it's, a, it's an important parable. But it shows us your compassion and your grace, your love for us. That your son, the great shepherd, the good shepherd, knows when even one has slipped away. And he goes after them. Father, whether we're the righteous of the 99 who are staying where we belong, or we're the one who goes astray and we're deceived. Lord, you love us anyway. And I think that's the most important lesson that we could hear. So thank you, Father, for that truth. Remind us of where we are. Love us and bring us home if we need to be. And if we are the ones who are righteous and we stay put where we belong, Lord, love us. And please be honored by our righteousness. But then thank you for the caution that we too could easily go astray. So Lord, I pray for your grace here. I pray as we close that you would speak to each and every one of us right where we are. Call us to your side. Embrace us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.